Thank you, John. And uh, I appreciate that introduction, except the part he's an old friend. <laughs> you mean a long-time friend, I hope, is what you meant. Okay. He's also an old friend. So. But it's always good to be back and uh, to share the Word of God. We're going to be in Genesis 22, if you want to follow along this morning. We're <clears throat> going to look at uh, two dimensions of the account in Genesis 22. We're going to uh, look at the account from a horizontal viewpoint and from a vertical viewpoint. The account of uh, Genesis 22 is the account of Abraham offering his son Isaac. And it is a remarkable foreshadowing in the Old Testament of the work of Christ in the New Testament. And it's going to focus our attention this morning upon the Lord's table. As we visualize old Abraham uh, binding his dear son to the altar, his heart breaking within him, we can readily see the parallel between God sending his own son to Calvary many centuries later. It's instructive to realize that between chapter 21 and chapter 22, about 20 years have elapsed. In Genesis 21, we find Abraham. He's in a tent by the uh, well of Beersheba that he has dug. Uh, he's in the wilderness with his son. He's built an altar. He's worshipped God. He's called upon the name of the everlasting, unchangeable God. And for 20 years of happiness, Abraham and Sarah have had their son Isaac with him, the delight of their eyes. By the way, Isaac means laughter. Can you imagine naming your child laughter? And you just see the little child running by. There goes laughter. And he brought laughter and delight into their lives. And so for almost 20 years, this little boy, laughter has been in their lives. The whole family life centers around the dear boy born in old age for both of them. And suddenly, like a thunderbolt from heaven, comes the voice of God saying, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. Take now your son, your only son, the son that you love, and offer him as a sacrifice. Take him to Mount Moriah. Now, Mount Moriah in the city of Jerusalem is the, the site of numerous biblical acts of faith. It's one of the most valuable and contested pieces of uh, real estate upon the earth. It's a sacred area to both Christians and Jews and Muslims. Uh, today there on uh, the top of the mount is what we call the Dome of the Rock, held by the Muslims, built about 13 centuries ago. They believe that Muhammad went up to heaven from there with his horse. But it's a, it's a very contested area, a very a beloved area. The only thing that's left of that area today from the, the days of Jesus out here on the earth is what we call the Wailing Wall. And sometimes you'll see that on, on TV, you'll see people there praying at the Wailing Wall. Maybe you've been there yourself and you put a prayer in the wall, at the Wailing Wall. About a thousand years after this account here in Genesis 22, it's the very site that David purchased. David purchased uh, the, the site of the mount from a Jebusite, from which we get the word Jerusalem. And he purchased the site there to build an altar to stay a plague. David's son Solomon built a wonderful temple there, a grand temple right there on the Temple Mount that we're talking about this morning. Then along came Nebuchadnezzar and wiped out the temple, took the Jews into captivity, Babylonian captivity. Seventy years later, they come back, they rebuild the temple, uh, get to the time of Christ, 
King Herod is around. He rebuilds the temple. Uh, he helps rebuild the temple, a 46-year construction project. If you think it's taking long to fix upstairs, this took 46 years to build. And that temple that Jesus cleansed was known as Herod's temple. Jesus said there's a day coming when not one stone upon another would stand. And that happened in 70 AD. That's the site to which God is directing the Temple Mount, Mount Calvary, where we're coming to this morning in our communion service. Now in Genesis 22, we have two words that are found for the first time in the scripture. The first word we find here is love, and the second word is worship. Now it doesn't mean we don't find love and worship before Genesis 22. Of course there was love before Genesis 22. There was worship. But the first time that we find the Hebrew words for love and for worship here are in Genesis 22. There's a biblical principle. It's not a law. It's just a principle that helps us understand that sometimes when you find important key words in the Bible for the first time, that's going to be the setting for them in the rest of the Word of God. It's instructive for us to see that love here is the love of a father for his son. Take now your son, the son whom you love. Scroll over to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The first time we find the word love is at the baptism of Jesus. Jesus has gone through the death, the burial, and the resurrection, and the baptism, symbolism. And the voice comes from heaven saying, this is my beloved son. Isn't that interesting? The first time we find love in the Old Testament, the son and father love each other. The first time we hear it in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the son and the father love each other. And then over in the Gospel of John, the first time we find love, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And so these are significant words here. The New Testament makes it clear that the account of Abraham and Isaac are a type of Christ in the New Testament. It's also here in Genesis 22 we find a new compound name for the Lord. Jehovah-Jireh. Most of us know that word. Jehovah-Jireh. God will provide. And we'll look at that just a little bit later on. So Abraham has fulfilled all that God has told him to do. He's left his former home in Haran. He's left his parents and his family behind. He's following the Lord. In his old age, he receives the promise of a son. He settles down and thinks everything's going to be happily ever after. And yet God is working out a plan and a purpose that we'll see that Jehovah Jireh. Jehovah Jireh, God will see. And in seeing, God provides. You see, God sees you. He knows your need today. And because he sees you, he knows your need, he will provide for your need because he foresees what your need is. He already knows what you need. Did I hear amen? Amen to that. Yeah, God knows your need this morning. Our, our word provide from the Latin, provide, V-I-D-E, like video. He sees us, and in seeing, he provides. And in seeing us and in providing, we see him. Genesis uh, chapter 22 this is the account of Abraham's greatest trial. It's a test of his deepest trust in Christ, and it's a work of the cross. Sometimes we think that the work of the cross in our lives is finished when we get saved. 
It's only the beginning. You know, at a wedding, you know, it's only just begun. It's the same thing in, in the work of salvation. The work of the cross only begins in your life when you receive Christ. The work of the cross continues on throughout our lifetime. And so, because it is a work of the cross, we're going to see three things this morning. We're going to see the believer's Gethsemane, we're going to see the believer's Calvary, and we're going to see the believer's resurrection. Whenever we find ourselves in a situation like Abraham, uh, we have a question. So let's look at the first four verses here in Genesis 22. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested. Some of your versions may say tempted. The Hebrew word is to test. God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And God said, now take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering, the one of the mountains to which I shall tell you. So Abraham procrastinated. He got up early the next morning. He saddled his donkey, took two young servants with him, and Isaac, his son, he split the wood for the burnt offering, rose, and went to the place to which God told him. And on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. When we find ourselves in a situation like Abraham's, the question comes to us, why? God, why are you asking me to do this? I've been obedient. I've done everything you wanted me to do. I'm trying to walk by faith. Why? Why should God ask this of me? I can see why God would ask Abraham to give up Hagar and her son. That made sense. Cast him out of the tent. That made sense. But we can't understand when God tells us to get rid of something that we cherish, to offer it up. But Lord, I would think, this is the son you gave me, the son of promise. This is the one you yourself gave me in your grace, the very gift of grace to my heart. Is this not a picture, though, of Gethsemane? Is this not a picture of what Jesus went through when he faced the same kind of test, requiring that God was requiring of him something Remember, Jesus prayed three times. The Son of God prayed three times. Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. If there's another way to do it, let's do it. There wasn't another way. There was only one way. The very gift of your grace, if it's possible. So take your son, your only son whom you love, Go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there on the mountain that I will show you. It's beyond comprehension. Isaac is the son that had been promised. He's Abraham's only son. God says to Abraham, I know you love that son, but I want you to go. And they go on a three-day journey. When you find three in the Bible, not always, but very often you're going to find resurrection. And for those three days... I believe in Abraham's heart and mind, Isaac was as good as dead. He had sacrificed him the moment he left. And three days later, we're going to see a resurrection. 
But here the command of God and the promise of God seemed to be in opposition to each other. It didn't make sense. Have you ever been in a situation where it just doesn't make sense? I've, I've often said that I can't make sense of this. I can't figure it out. And my wife and I will talk through things and try to find the logic of it. And sometimes we do. Usually she does. But sometimes we do. And sometimes it just doesn't make sense when we hear the voice of God. But God was not commanding Abraham to commit a crime. I want to point that out this morning. To that he was asking him to execute a judgment that was justly due. Burnt offerings involve two things. First of all, the person who gave the burnt offering was offering himself and saying, Lord, I lay it all before you. Whatever I have is yours. Coming under the lordship of Jesus Christ, as we would say in the New Testament. And it also said that the sacrifice was going to take the place of another. It reminds us that the wages of sin is death. We were supposed to die. We were supposed to die for our sins. But another has taken our place. He stood in our place. He stood in our judgment. He took the wrath of God for us. The wages of sin is death. It's appointed a man once to die. And after that, the judgment. Isaac is the firstborn also. And in the Bible, we read in the book of Exodus, consecrate every firstborn male the first offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me, whether human or animal. Later on in Exodus, you must give me your firstborn sons. So Isaac belonged to God. Already he belonged to God as a firstborn son. And God has every right to condemn us. In fact, we all stand under the condemnation of death. Unless Jesus comes, we're all going to die because we stand under that condemnation, because we're born in sin and because we choose to sin. And I think to some lesser degree, you and I have had experiences like Abraham has had. You've stared at some situation or circumstance in your life, and you said, is this really what God wants? Is this really what God requires? Is this what God expects? Why is this happening to me? This was Abraham's greatest test. Abraham is 113 years old. You think I'm just going to talk about old men. <laughs> Last time it was Daniel who was 90 years old. But he's 113. Isaac, you know, we see him in the little pictures in our, our books. He looks like he's about seven or eight. He's probably 17 or 18 years old. Can you imagine the 17 or 18-year-old and 113-year-old? Who has the advantage here physically? But the beautiful thing is, you see, the two walk together because Isaac trusted his father's love. Can you trust your father's love this morning and walk with him? Wherever it takes you, wherever that path may go, you go with your father because he loves you. And you know he's going to take care of you because he already sees he's already provided in advance. It's a test, and so it's really not a test of Isaac, it's a test of Abraham. And we're going to see what God does in Abraham's life on a horizontal basis.
The real question is what's not going to happen to Isaac, but what happens to Abraham? Are we prepared to love God unconditionally? That's the first inevitable question I'm asking this morning. Are we prepared to trust God unconditionally? God, no conditions, nothing held back. I trust you, I trust you alone. I take your hand, you're going to lead me, and you're going to fulfill your word and your promise. Do we have any emotional attachments that are off the table? God, I love you, but you can't have that part. I love you, but I just want to hold this little bit back. There's no holding back here. You know, remember the rich young ruler who came to Jesus? And he asked, what must I do to be saved, basically? And he said, do, you know, follow the law. And he said, I've done this, and I've done this, and I've done this, and I've done, done this. And Jesus said, sell all. Now, he doesn't come and tell us to sell all. It's not, not a condition of salvation. It's a condition of the heart. Am I willing to sell all? Am I willing to give whatever is most precious? To that man, it was most precious. And he walked away sorrowfully. When Jesus called Levi, he was at the tax table. He said, follow me. What did Levi do? Gather up his coins? Uh, he just left it all. The fishermen, what were they doing? They were fishing. Some were mending their nets, some were out fishing. Jesus said, follow me. And they left their nets. They left it all behind. There's another man who came to Jesus and said, I want to follow you, but first I want to go take care of some business at home. Jesus said, don't worry about that. You follow me. Seek first the kingdom of God and everything else will fall into place. If we love something more than we love Jesus, it becomes an idol. We become idolaters. And I think perhaps that might have been the case here with Isaac. That Abraham might have started to love Isaac more than he loved the God who gave him. More than the God of grace. And we put weight on things that cannot bear the weight. We love our marriages, and we should love our marriages. We love our children, and certainly we should, and our careers and our finances. But they're all secondary, and we put weight on them that they cannot bear. And when they disappoint us, things fall apart. It's where you put the weight, where you're putting your trust. Abraham could not have saved Isaac's life if he wanted to. Whatever we love more than God can turn into an idol. Career, money, work, possessions, pleasure, relationships, approval, whatever it might be. Religion, politics, viewpoints, morality, wherever, they, wherever it takes us, we lay it on the table, on this table this morning. Abraham faced the test, and he passed the test, because it said, Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. Where did he get that idea from? He had never seen anybody raised from the dead. There was no Lazarus. There was no widow of Nain's son because he had a faith in God that said, my God will not fail me. I don't know how he's going to do it, but he's going to do it. He passed the test. He knew that everything belonged to God and he trusted that God would provide. You see, I think that expression, Jehovah Jireh, was ruling in Abraham's thought long before he ever had to go to Mount Moriah, ever before he ever had to provide his son as a substitute. His reason may have whispered to him, if you slay your son Isaac, how can God keep his promise? If you slay your son Isaac, 
what are you going to tell Sarah when you get home? <laughs> what are you going to tell the neighbors? And I believe that very truth. Jehovah Jireh was ruling in his heart. And he said, I can't understand it. I don't know how it's going to work out. But God's going to do it. And that's good enough for me. Jehovah Jireh will see to it. And he went on that painful journey with his son at his side. Knowing that God will not fail. In verse 7 and 8, um, they've left the young men behind. He says, I'm going yonder and worship and I and the lad will come back to you. We're going to come back. We're going, but we are coming back. In the Hebrew, it's in the plural. Not I'm coming back, we're coming back. I don't know how God's doing it, but he's going to do it. And then the son, in verse 7 and 8, Isaac spoke to his father and said, Father, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb? That's an inevitable question too, isn't it? Where's the lamb? The lamb is the master theme of the Bible. I'm just going to give you a little sidebar here this morning. In Genesis, we have the provision of the lamb. God has provided the lamb. You come to the book of Exodus, the Passover. The slain of the lamb is the important factor there. You come to Leviticus, the Day of Atonement. It is a perfect lamb, a lamb without spot, without blemish. You come to Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. It is the personality of the lamb that we see. In John chapter 1 in the New Testament, behold the lamb of God. In 1 Peter, the resurrection of the lamb. And in Revelation, the enthronement of the lamb. Let's just move through that again quickly. In Genesis, if Abraham and Isaac... One lamb for one person. In the Passover, one lamb for a whole family. You come to the Day of Atonement, you have one lamb for the whole nation. You come to Isaiah 53, it's one lamb for many nations. He shall sprinkle many nations. Come to John chapter 1, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. In 1 Peter, it is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The lamb for all of eternity. And then in Revelation, the lamb seated upon the throne this morning. The one that we come to worship this morning in this communion table is the lamb enthroned for all of eternity. If we stopped here, we could only see one dimension of the uh, horizontal uh, dimension. I want to get into the vertical dimension this morning. Moving beyond the Gethsemane, I want to move to Calvary in verses 5 through 14. We have Calvary. The uh, record is silent about Abraham's emotional state here. But I think if we put ourselves in his place, we could feel somewhat of his heart, how his heart was torn. And I, I cannot picture a man walking three days with his son, the son is carrying the wood. The son carried the wood. He carried the cross. And the son is carrying the wood. And he finally asked that question. Oh, the question Abraham didn't want his, want his son ever to ask. Where's the lamb? We have the wood. We have the fire. Where's the sacrifice? Where is the lamb? Must have broken Abraham's heart to hear that question. But the whisper came. God will provide. You know, God always has a ram caught in the thicket for you. You think it's not there, but God has the ram. 
caught in a thicket for you. And we know the real answer to Isaac's question runs through intervening centuries until we get to the book of John and John the Immerser, John the Baptizer, sees Jesus coming and says, Behold the Lamb of God. That's the answer. Behold the Lamb of God. He knew he was going to worship. He knew he was coming back again. And he knew that Isaac was necessary for the fulfillment of all of God's promises. And we don't have to wonder why Abraham uttered this truth. Jehovah Jireh would be associated with such a spot as this. For his whole life was saturated with the fact that he was a covenant-keeping God. This is the new covenant in my blood. He's a covenant-keeping God. The God that we worship this morning, whatever he said to you, he's going to keep his word. Jehovah Jireh will provide. And as the people of God, we need to be teaching succeeding generations that God's hand is not shortened. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And Abraham on this occasion did not choose a name uh, simply out of the air, but, but one that was breathed by the Holy Spirit, what Jehovah has done. And you notice Abraham doesn't say anything about himself. He says, God has provided. I, not I did it. Look how great I am. Look at I obeyed God and how he blessed God from the beginning to the end. Jehovah Jireh, God will see to it. God will provide. The first time he says, Elohim will provide. Elohim is the general word for God. But after he sees God's provision, he says it's the God who keeps his covenant. He says, Jehovah, Jehovah Jireh, God will provide himself a lamb. God himself becomes the lamb. God himself becomes the sacrifice. Consider then the, the provision which God made for Abraham was symbolic of a greater provision. And then we read over in the book of John in the New Testament, and Abraham rejoiced to see my day, Jesus said. What do you think Jesus was talking about? Abraham saw that God was going to one day provide the lamb. He was able to see ahead what God was going to do. And he saw ahead. God always has his ram. And the, uh, the knife is lifted up to slay. And the voice again comes from heaven and says, Lay not your hand. God pressed him to the very end. To the very end. You know, and so it is with us that while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. If we could just understand how costly our salvation was, what it is to be a sinner and to be separated from God. We often talk about our salvation as if it's very ordinary. We've heard the plan of substitution, the plan of salvation, maybe since we were very little. It can become commonplace. But I still believe it thrills the angels with astonishment that man would be redeemed by the God and creator of all things. The ram caught in the thicket was God's provision. But you know, it wasn't sought. Abraham didn't kneel down and pray, Oh God, can you please provide a substitute? 
And I don't think we ever would have thought of the idea of a substitute. God substituting his son, his son's life, forever changing his nature, holy God and holy man, as we've been hearing in the Christmas series, forever changing his nature, becoming one with us. But God, from his free grace, his own loving heart, put the ram where Abraham found it. And God has placed his son where we can find him, in a testimony, in the world, in the word of God. Yet, while we were yet sinners, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Peter tells us the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. Do you know that God knew about you before the foundation of the world? He knew about you and he provided because he foresaw he provided a lamb for you before you were ever created. So it was unsought, it was unexpected. Abraham didn't expect a substitute. He thought Isaac would have to die. And in fact, he viewed him as already dead. If God had not revealed the plan of salvation by the substitution, we never would have known it. A New Testament mystery revealed by the Holy Spirit. But the fact that for man's need, provision was made by God himself. God will provide. None could have provided a ransom. It's not the blood of bulls and goats, but the blood of his own son. Psalm tells us, none by can any means redeem his brother, nor give a ransom to God for him. God provided a ram. I can't put it any any simpler, but God provided God. (laughs) Jesus is God. God provided God for our salvation. The believer's Gethsemane, the believer's Calvary, and now we come to the believer's resurrection in verses 14 through 18. And Abraham called the name of the place Jehovah-Jireh. God will provide, and in providing, he will be seen. It is said in the mount of the Lord. Oh, the mount of the Lord, Calvary. It will be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants. God's gifts are of no value to us until we're willing to lay them upon the altar, to relinquish them without any rival in our hearts, when we've come to the place where the Spirit of God wants to bring us, that relationship with God the Father, and when that relationship means more to us than anything, Jesus said, you have to love me if you're going to be my disciple, and leave everything else behind, more than even our families, more than me. Those are harsh terms of discipleship, but that's his calling. And when you follow his calling, all those other things fall into place, and they'll have the right place in your life. And you'll be able to honor God through them and with them. So we need to be even willing to give up even the gifts that God has given to us. So in resurrection power, he can bring them back to life again. You see, consider them as dead. I am crucified with Christ, Paul said. 
Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. Is not this the record of every man and woman who's ever counted for God, willing to give it all up for the choice blessing of God, and in doing so, they become a blessing? It can be in major areas, it can be in minor areas. It's the principle of the cross in our lives. What makes resurrection life possible? It's death. You can't have resurrection life without death. Paul said that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, but that means he had to die, crucified with Christ. And then we can have that resurrection power. Our God is a God of resurrection. When it looks as though we may be throwing things away and people saying, you're wasting it, why are you doing this? God transforms that moment into the very thing we give up. The provision was made effective. Isaac did not die. Little after got to go home with his dad into the family. He went home in happy companionship. Jehovah had provided a lamb. The ram did not bleed in vain. It was a substitute. Isaac didn't have to die and the ram. It's not an either or. It's just the ram died in his place. Jehovah Jireh. The narrative of Abraham here shows us that the Lord will be the provider of his people. It says, to this day it is said, on the mount the Lord will provide it. He provided on the mount, a mount called Calvary. And you need to keep, and we need to keep going back to Calvary. Every day, going back and just bowing before the one who died for us. To this day, it's telling that the sacrifice God provides is necessary. It's a blood sacrifice. Where is the lamb? That's the inevitable question. What can take away my sin? Nothing, I won't sing it for you, but nothing but the blood of Jesus. He that spared not his only son, but delivered him up. How shall he not freely give us all things? Abraham learned as soon as he had slaughtered the ram, for the covenant was repeated in his ears, and repeated perhaps as he had never heard it before. By myself I have sworn. The covenant was ratified by blood. The table this morning reminds us of that. It's possible for you and me to love something, someplace, something more than we love God. And this is a call this morning to come back and love God first and let everything else come into place. Abraham lifted up his head to respond to the voice and he stood there, a man wholly surrendered to God. See, he understood what lordship is. He just didn't sing he is Lord. He knew what lordship was. And Abraham now possessed nothing. Oh, he was a rich man. He had a son, he had his wife, he had his cattle and his herd, and he had everything else, the goods of every sort. By worldly standards, he was a rich man. And people might see Abraham passing by and say, he's a rich man. But Abraham knew inside he possessed nothing because he was possessed by God himself. And I think the words my, my and mine didn't mean much to Abraham anymore. 
because they belonged to God. The sense of possession was gone. Things were cast out forever from his heart. They were now external, and he lived for the eternal. Where will God provide? He will provide for us right where we are. It might be at the very last minute, but he will provide for us in the mount. The heat of the furnace may be great, but he's never, never too late. The truth uh, faith rests upon the character of God. It doesn't ask for any proof. It simply says, God, not my will, yours be done. Faith, as the Bible knows, is confidence in God and his Son. It's the response of the soul to the divine character. So this isn't just a narrative about Abraham and who Abraham loved most. It's an account that teaches something about our Heavenly Father, about the price that was paid when Jesus prayed three times for the cup to be removed and then went to the cross and had to cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the Father remained silent. He let it go because it had to be accomplished. We have this narrative. Hopefully we have some understanding of what the Father did with the Son, Abraham and Isaac. God the Father and Jesus the Son. And the angel said to Abraham, Now I know you fear God. You have not withheld from me your son, your only son. He's not withheld his son, his only son. Romans 8, 32. He that spared not his son, but delivered him up for us all. So Abraham and Isaac going up the mountain is the picture of the price the father paid at Calvary. And when we see that, I think we'll really get this communion table this morning. And Abraham is a wonderful type of Christ. The next time we find Isaac, though, in the Bible, he's greeting his bride. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do proclaim the Lord's death till he comes again. He's coming again for his bride. And so the next time we'll see him. We're going to be with him, or he'll lift us up in the air, and we'll be the bride of Christ, a wonderful type, as we await. The cry of the Old Testament, where is the Lamb? The cry of the Gospels, behold the Lamb. And the cry of eternity, worthy is the Lamb.